the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Jeremiah. The word restore or restoration is used often in the Bible, and so kind of in a biblical sense, when we say restoration, what we mean is it's when God leads people back to Him who are estranged or distant from Him. It's when God forgives sin and gives hope. So this is what God does with us. He restores us. He takes our old lives, our sinful, grimy lives, and He restores us into right relationship with Him, and He gives us a new life. We as humans are frequently stranded. We are frequently confronted with difficult situations in our lives. Some of them are too much for us to bear, leaving us emotionally exhausted and beginning to lose hope. The enemy sends us trials, and we fall into the trap of sin. How are we going to be saved? Pastor Gary explains in today's message how God restores you from your current state and transforms you into a new person. He forgives your sins and gives you hope so that you can start over again. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, as he begins his message, Restoration. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. There's a skill that I admire that some people have. In fact, some of you might even have this skill, and it's the skill of restoration, of taking something that is otherwise old and useless and restoring it to its original beauty. For example, some people have this wonderful skill of restoration with furniture. You can take some old piece of furniture that has years and years of accumulated paint coats and varnish and lacquer and all that good stuff, and you just begin to strip it all off and get it down to its original beautiful wood grain, and then you use some tongue oil and polish the whole thing up, and you're able to restore it to its original beauty. I admire it. Uh, Some of you also have the skill of restoring old cars. Some of you like that as a hobby. You take an old car that's beat up and rusted out and just a piece of junk otherwise, and you restore the thing, the interior, the exterior, the engine, and you make it beautiful. I I just admire that. Uh, Many years ago, my great aunt had given to my dad, and he passed down to me, a 1967 Plymouth Belvedere. And she, woohoo, for the Plymouth Belvedere's. Uh, you like Mopars? That was a great car. And it was given to me in pristine condition. My, my great aunt never married. She was your, a typical, just kind of, if you have the image of kind of an old spinster, she was just stay at home, only went to church and the grocery store and, and garaged that car. So when I got it, it only had 38,000 miles on it pristine condition inside and out. But everything else about it needed to be repaired. All the belts had dry rotted, the hoses, the wiring. It needed to be reworked in that way. I was driving the thing around town without an inspection sticker. Don't judge me. And, uh, and, and, the, and the brake, the, the, the tubes for the, for the uh, brake fluid were leaking because it had dry rotted. And it was the hardest thing to get that thing to stop. And it was a heavy boat of a car, too. Anyway, I decided this isn't, this isn't my, my gift, this isn't my skill set, so I ended up selling it, and I, I sold that thing for a song. I'm still kicking myself about it. But anyway, if you have that skill, I admire you. Professionals also know how to restore old pieces of art, expensive, valuable pieces of art, and they have this wonderful way of using certain solvents to be able to get rid of the resin and the grime and the accumulated lacquer over the year. Uh, Let me give you an example. There's a a piece of artwork that was done as a mural in Florence, Italy, painted by Fra Angelico as a friar in Italy in the 15th century. And the, the mural was called The Crucified Christ. And through a process of restoration using the right solvents to remove all of the gunk and grime over the centuries from the 15th century, They restored it to its natural beauty and to its original glow. And so I share these things with you because God is also into the business of restoration. And God is very gifted at it. It's his his skill. And we're not talking furniture and cars and artwork. We're talking the skill of the restoration of people. God knows how to restore people. 
Now, just so we can have a working definition, uh, the idea of restoration, Webster defines it like this. It's a bringing back to a former position or condition or simply an improved condition. And the word restore or restoration is used often in the Bible. And so kind of in a biblical sense, when we say restoration, what we mean is it's when God leads people back to him who are estranged or distant from him. It's when God forgives sin and gives hope. So this is what God does with us. He restores us. He takes our old lives, our sinful, grimy lives, and he restores us into right relationship with him, and he gives us a new life. How many of you are thankful for restoration in your lives? Amen? This is what God does. And this is what's going on here in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a chapter about restoration. God promises to restore the Jewish people who have sinned against him and rebelled against him. And it's a good template for us to be reminded about God's restoring work in our own lives. And so this passage here that I've just read in Jeremiah chapter 29 is one of the most familiar uh, passages of Scripture in the whole book of Jeremiah. It's one of the most often quoted sections of Scripture in the book of Jeremiah. And what we find out here is that chapter 29 is actually a letter. The first few verses tell us that God basically inspired Jeremiah to pen a letter and to write this letter to the exiles, the Jewish people who have now been taken captive and deported a thousand miles from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is where they're living now. Now, just to bring you up to speed, if some of you are new to the church or new to our Bible study here, here's the historical background. In the year 606 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar began sieging Judah. Judah was the lower portion of the nation of Israel. It was the the kingdom of the south, Judah. By the way, The people of Judah were so named after the territory, which was named after the tribe of Judah, Jews. The term Jew does not appear to describe the Israelites until this time period here related to the Babylonian captivity. And the people will then forever and even today be known as Jews, so named after coming from Judah. So the Jews have now been deported to Babylon by the tens of thousands. Over the period of 20 years, from 606 B.C. to 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar will come against Judah and wear the the country down and eventually even overtake the city of Jerusalem. And in the process of those 20 years, he will deport tens of thousands of Jews to Babylon. They will be uprooted from their country Uh, They will be forcibly removed from their homes. They will be separated from their families. And many of them, most of them, will never again return to their homeland. Most of them will die in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes here, you better learn to settle down and just go ahead and build houses and give your kids in marriage because you're going to be there for a long time. This is what God has prescribed as a means of disciplining you. Now, why was God disciplining them? Because they had forsaken God, and the Jewish people had begun to adopt the pagan gods of the nations around them. And in doing that, they started to adopt the pagan practices associated with these pagan gods, including, we talked about it a few weeks ago, the sacrifice of their own children in the worship of these false gods. And so God loved his people enough to say, I cannot allow you to remain on this wicked path. 
forsaking me, rebelling against me. And so he uses the Babylonian empire as the rod of his discipline. Three times in the book of Jeremiah, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar in the hand of God, Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize he was the pawn that God would use, but in the hand of God, Nebuchadnezzar becomes this instrument that God will use to correct the people that God loves, his own Jewish people. And so for a period of 70 years, the the, the territory of Judah will be absorbed into the Babylonian empire, and the Jewish people, most of them, are taken off to Babylon, where they will spend 70 years. God, in essence is going to teach them. And the way he's going to teach them is by giving them what they want. Now listen to me on this. Oftentimes God will give us what we want in order for us to realize what we need. Everybody follow me on this? What the people wanted was to worship other false gods. And God's like, okay, is this what you really want? You really want this. You really want to be in rebellion against me? You really want to deny me? You really want to worship these other gods? Okay, I'm going to let you spend 70 years where they worship all those other gods. And only then, when they got what they wanted, did they realize what they needed. And what they needed was the Lord. And it would take Babylon to make them realize that. And this is true in our lives as well, friends. Some of you are not in a good place. You know it, God knows it. You know that you're not right with God. You're not in a good place. And the fact of the matter is, it's possible that the reason you've arrived in that bad place is because you've gotten what you've wanted. You've gotten what you've wanted. But it is only there that you realize that what you wanted is not really what you needed. And it wasn't until you got what you wanted that you realized what you really needed because what you wanted wasn't all that. Is anybody picking up what I'm laying down? All right. So that's the way it works. And that's the way God deals with us. He's like, okay, you want to live like that? You want to enjoy those things? And for a season, for a season, he gives us just enough rope to realize, man, I'm hanging myself. I need to run back to the Lord. And so this is the process sometimes God will use to get us to the place where we finally realize, man, I need him. So Babylon would be that place for his children. And they would realize, man, I need him. What I love about God in this whole story is that his mercy is demonstrated on the front end and the back end. Let me explain what I mean by that. They didn't have to go to Babylon. They didn't have to be carried off as captives if they had turned. That's the reason why God sent prophet after prophet after prophet warning them in advance. So God's mercy was on the front end. And God was saying over and over again through the prophets, if you'll turn to me, the Babylonians don't need to come. If you turn to me, they don't need to come. If you don't turn to me, they're coming. So his mercy was there on the front end, but they didn't heed his warning. They rejected the word of the prophet. They rejected God. And so the Babylonians came. Babylonians hauled them off to captivity where they will spend 70 years. But the beauty of God is that not only is is his mercy evident in the front end, but his mercy is evident in, in the back end of this story. Because even after the 70 years, it's not like God has washed his hands of them. He still is going to display his mercy to them by bringing them back and restoring them. And this is what he does here in chapter 29. What is so amazing to me is that they have, they have barely gotten over to Babylon and God says to Jeremiah, I want you to write a letter. I got a letter that I want to dictate to you. I want to inspire to you. And I want you to write this letter down and I want you to send it by way of a messenger. So two guys take this letter, their name there to Babylon. And let it be read among the elders and the priests and the people. Because I want them to know 
I'm not done with them. I want them to know that there's still mercy on the other end of this. Okay, now here's why this whole story is important to us. Because we need God's mercy too. And there have been times I've sinned against the Lord on the front end of his mercy. And I'm so thankful that there's still mercy on the back end. Anybody else? Amen. And this is the way God is with us. And we can't lose sight of this. This is an amazing, remarkable thing. When you understand what's happening here, I hope you do. That God's like, okay, okay, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to send you to Babylon. But then they're no sooner there. Then God says, I want you to write this love letter to them. Jeremiah, take this letter. And I want them to know how much I think of them. The plans I have for them. The hope I have for them. The future that is in store for them. I want them to know. I've not given up on them. Because I still love them. Because I'm the God of restoration. So look at this story with me here in chapter 29. I'm going to break down with you verses 10 to 14. And then we're also going to take a jog over to chapter 31. But chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now let's stop right there. First part here of verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It literally translates, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. God thinks about us. And I know that might seem a really super simplistic thing to say. But I want this to sink in a little bit. The people of God have rebelled against him. They've been obstinate and sinful. They are now in Babylon. And God still wants them to know, I haven't forgotten about you. I think about you all the time. I think about you. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. It's good to know that though the Jews had sinned against God, He was still thinking about them. He had not forsaken them. That even though they had been banished from the land of Judah, sent over to Babylon, they had not been banished from the heart and mind of God. That God still loved them, thought about them, has a plan for them. He's concerned about them. You know, listen, you are here today and you might feel far from God because you've sinned against him, and you know you're not right with God. You know you're not in a good place with God. But I just want you to know you're heavy on his heart and mind. He still thinks about you. He has thoughts toward you. You are near and dear to the heart of God. God never loves our sin, but he still loves us, and he separates what we do from who we are. And he loves us enough that he won't abandon us. He sticks closer than a brother. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Of course his heart is broken when we sin. Of course he's grieved over it, as he was for his own children, that he himself intentionally sent to Babylon as a part of disciplining them and purging them of idolatry and bringing them to a place of greater surrender. But he never forgot about them. And he never forgets about us because we're still near and dear to his heart and mind. In Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, the psalmist says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. 
Now listen again. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Now, the psalmist is not saying that he knows the thoughts of God. So in reality, if you look at the original Hebrew, the, the, the preposition to, when he, when he says here, how precious to me are your thoughts, it literally translates how precious for me are your thoughts. How precious concerning me are your thoughts. That the psalmist is amazed that in all the vastness of the universe, God would stop to think about every single one of us. We are near and dear to the heart and thought of God. In fact, David would write in Psalm 8 verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of us? What is man that you are mindful of us? The son of man that you care about us. And David is blown away by the thought that God would think about us. That, that in all the vastness of the universe, God actually thinks about you and me specifically. And so, God thinks about us, part of his restoration toward us. Number two, we also see here in this, in this passage that God is for us. The second part of verse 11 reads like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is a great verse here, but let me bring some clarity to it, because over the years, some people have done damage to the text, because some people have westernized this verse. Whenever people in the, in the Western Hemisphere see the word prosper, they instantly think, oh, God wants to make everybody rich. Well, that was, that's what this means then, right? God wants everybody, I know the plans I have to prosper you. God wants everybody to be rich. That's not what he's saying here. Okay, listen, by the way, one rule of thumb is that the Bible is true, and because of that, to test how true it is, it is true no matter where you teach it, to whom you teach it, or what generation you teach it to, because God's Word is relevant to every language, nation, tribe, race, creed, culture, and generation. And so you, you should be able to read this and know, does it apply to all people, all times, all places? You can't for example, go to people living in mud huts in Uganda and convince them that this verse means God wants everybody to be rich. Because that's not what this verse means. In the NIV, where the word prosper is, you can circle the word, and, and whatever else translation, I think ESV says something about wholesome. It's the word in the original Hebrew, shalom. We get the word peace. God wants his overarching peace for your life. He's not promising you a new car, okay? So get that out of your head. What he's saying here transcends material things. What he's saying here is, I want for you a peace that passes all understanding. I want you to have my overwhelming goodness and favor expressed to you through my shalom, my peace in your life. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to experience his peace. Jesus would say in John 14, 27, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you my peace. It's different from what the world offers. That's why Jesus said, so let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Because when we have this overwhelming peace of God, it's better than anything in our lives. And God says, this is what I have in store for you, my peace. Now, it's important that the exiles knew this because, see, when they're feeling so estranged and distant from God, he's saying to them, I just want you to know what I have in store for you, okay? He says, I have my overwhelming peace for you. I want you to understand my wholeness and my goodness towards you. I don't intend harm for you. He said, I don't intend harm. That's the other part of this passage. No harm intended. 
See, when God is disciplining us, it's easy for us to think God's out to get us. He's punishing me for something. Okay, listen, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of Jeremiah. Known as the Weeping Prophet, he was only 20 years old when he began his prophetic life. Though not specifically mentioned, it is believed he would have followed the life of a pastor. And because of his young age, he was not always well received. No doubt this influenced his writings. And because of their heavy and often negative tone, he earned his title as the Weeping Prophet. However, this did not stop him, and he went on to prophesy the many truths that the people of Jerusalem needed to hear. Did you know that getting together as a church family is one way that you can hear truth from one another? Cornerstone Chapel gets together each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday at 7 p.m. to learn from the Word and spend time in worship as sons and daughters of the King. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We also encourage and believe in the power of praying together and for one another. Email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net with your prayer needs today. Thanks for listening to The Weeping Prophet, Jeremiah, today on Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.